Section 20 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jake Melitzia. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Chapter 8, Part 1. Pianoforte and Chamber Music of the Romantic Period The striking difference between the pianoforte music of the 19th century and that of the 18th is, of course, not an accident. That of the 18th is in most cases not properly piano music at all, since it was composed specifically for the clavichord or harpsichord, which have little beyond the familiar keyboard in common with the modern pianoforte. Both classes of instruments were known and in use throughout the greater part of the 18th century, and the date 1800 may be taken as that at which the pianoforte displaced its rivals. Much of the old harpsichord music is played today on the piano, as, for instance, Bach's Preludes and Fugues, but the structure of the music is very different, and the effect on the piano gives no idea of the effect as originally intended. The most superficial glance shows eloquently the difference between the two sorts of keyboard music. That of the 19th century differs from its predecessor in its emphasis on long, sustained singing melody, in its greater range, in its reliance on special tone qualities, in being, to a great extent, melodic instead of polyphonic, in wide skips and separation of notes, and, above all, in its use of sustained chords. Leaving aside the specific tendencies of the Romantic period, all these differences can be explained by the difference in the instruments for which the two sorts of music were written. The clavichord was a very simple instrument of keys and strings. The length of the vibrating string, which determines its pitch, was set at the stroke which set it in vibration by a metal tangent on the end of the key lever, being at once the hammer and the fret of the string. The stroke was slight, the tone was extremely soft. The vibration continued only a few seconds and was so slight that anything like the singing tone of the pianoforte was impossible. But within the duration of a single note, the player, by a rapid upward and downward movement of the wrist which varied the pressure on the key, could produce a wavering tone similar to the vibrato of the human voice and the violin, which gave a faint but live warmth to the tone unhappily wholly lacking in the tone of the pianoforte. It was doubtless this peculiar live expressiveness which made the instrument a favourite of the great Bach, and which, moreover, justifies the player in making the utmost possible variety of tone in playing Bach's clavier works on the modern instrument. The sound of the instrument was something like that of an Aeolian harp, and was therefore quite unsuited to the concert hall. But it was of a sympathetic quality, that made it a favourite for small rooms and much loved by composers for their private musings. The harpsichord was the concert piano, so to speak, of the time. Its strings were plucked by means of a short quill, and a damper automatically deadened the tone an instant afterwards. The instrument was therefore quite incapable of sustained melody, or of gradations of volume, except within the use of stops, which on the best instruments could bring new sets of strings into play. Its tone was sharp and mechanical, not very unlike that of a mandolin. 
Now what the modern pianoforte possesses, apart from its greater range and resonance, is chiefly ability to control the power of the tone by force or lightness of touch, and to sustain individual notes by means of holding down the key, or all of them together through the use of the sustaining pedal. Theoretically, the clavichord could both control power and sustain notes, but the tone was so slight that these virtues were of little practical use. The ground principle of the pianoforte is its rebounding hammer, which strikes the string with any desired power, and immediately rebounds so as to permit it to continue vibrating. Each string is provided with its damper, which is held away from it as long as the key is pressed down. The sustaining or damper pedal removes all the dampers from the strings so that any notes which are struck will continue vibrating. The one thing which piano cannot do is to control the tone after it is struck. By great care in the use of materials, piano makers have been able to produce a tone which continues vibrating with great purity and persistence, but this inevitably dies out as the vibrations become diminished in amplitude. The legato of the pianoforte is only a second best, and is rather an oral illusion than a fact. Any increasing of the tone, as with the violin, is quite impossible. Any true sustaining of the tone is equally impossible, but by skilful writing and playing, the illusion of legato tone can be well maintained and a far greater beauty and variety of effect can be reached than one might think possible from a mechanical examination of the instrument. Before 1770, the date of Beethoven's birth, clavier music existed only for the clavichord and the harpsichord, though it could also be played on the pianoforte. Beethoven grew up with a maturing pianoforte. By the time he had reached his artistic maturity, in 1800, it had driven its rivals from the field. Up to 1792, all Beethoven's compositions were equally adapted to the piano and the harpsichord. Up to 1803, they were published for pianoforte or harpsichord, though it is probable that in the preceding decade he had written most of his clavier music with the pianoforte in mind. The earliest pianoforte, made in the first two decades of the 18th century, had a compass of four and a half octaves, a little more than that of the ordinary clavichord. The pianoforte of Mozart's time had five octaves, and Clementi added half an octave in 1793. By 1811, six and a half octaves had been reached, and in 1836, about the time of the publication of Liszt's first compositions, barring the youthful etudes, there were seven, or seven and one-third, which have remained the standard ever since. During all this time, piano makers had been endeavouring to increase the rigidity of the piano frame, this was partly to take care of the greater size due to the adding of bass strings, but chiefly to permit of greater tension. The quality and persistency of the vibration depends to a great extent on the tension of the strings. Other things being equal, the excellence of the tone increases, up to a certain limit, with the tension. This led gradually to the introduction of iron supports, and later to a solid cast iron or steel frame, though up to 1820 only wood was used in the body of the pianoforte, until the tension became so great and the pitch so high, for the sake of tonal brilliancy, that the wooden frame proved incapable of sustaining the strain. The average tension on each string 
is, in the modern piano, some £175, and was up to recent times much higher. The present Steinway Concert Grands suffers a strain of more than 20 tonnes, and under the higher pitch of former years had to stand 30. The weight of the instrument itself is half a tonne. These improvements have made the piano second only to the orchestra for all-around usefulness and expressiveness. The size of the instrument and the high tension of the strings made its tone sufficient for the largest concert hall, and permitted a keyboard range almost double that of the harpsichord. The individual dampers responsive to the pressure of the key made a quasi-legato and true melody playing possible. The rebounding hammer, directly controlled by the key, made possible all variety of soft and loud tone, and the sustaining or damper, incorrectly called the loud pedal, made possible the sustaining of chords in great richness. The usefulness of this last device is still not half stated in saying that chords can be sustained, for when all the strings are left open, there occurs a sympathetic vibration in the strings which are not struck by the hammers, but are in tune with the overtones of the strings that are struck. This fact increases, to an astonishing extent, the resonance and sonority of any chord sounded with the help of the sustaining pedal. It makes the instrument almost orchestral in quality, opening to it an amazing range and variety of effect, which Chopin, Liszt, and many piano writers after them used with supreme and magical skill. The soft pedal opens another range of effects. On the grand piano, it shifts the hammers so that they hit but one of the three strings proper to each note in the middle and upper registers, hence the direction una corda, written in the pianoforte works of all great masters, including Beethoven. The piano thus became an ideal sounding board for the Romantic movement. It was capable of luscious expressive melody. It could obtain effects of great delicacy and intimate character. It could be loud, astonishing, and orchestral. Its tone was in itself a thing of sensuous beauty. Its freedom in harmony was no less than its freedom in melody, and enharmonic changes, beloved of all the Romanticists, became easy. It allowed the greatest liberty in the disposition of notes, and harmonic accompaniment, with broken chords and arpeggios, could take on an absolute beauty of its own. This sufficiently explains the complete change in the method of writing clavier music in the 19th century. One example of the way in which Mozart and Chopin obtained harmonic sonority in accompaniments will show how far-reaching the change was. Excerpt Mozart, Sonata in F Major Excerpt Chopin, Nocturne, Opus 27, Number 2 By the use of the damper pedal, the Chopin formula gives the effect of a sustained chord. On the harpsichord it would have sounded like a few notes too widely scattered to be united in sonority. With such an instrument, every style of music became possible. Liszt asserted that he could reproduce any orchestral effect on it, and many of the best orchestral works of his time became generally known first through his pianoforte arrangements of them. 
equally possible were the simple song-like melodies of some of Chopin's preludes, or the whimsical genre pieces of Schumann. As a consequence, the wonderful piano literature of the 19th century is equal to any music in range, power, and emotional expressiveness. Nearly all the qualities of romantic music find their beginnings in Beethoven, but it is not always easy to disentangle the romantic from the classical element in his music, and for convenience we begin the history of the romantic period with Schubert and Weber, for the specific and conscious tendencies of romanticism first showed themselves in fondness for smaller, free pianoforte forms, which Beethoven cultivated not at all, if we omit his historically negligible Für Elise, and one or two other pieces of the same sort. Beethoven's later sonatas, while romantic in their breaking through the classic form and seeking a more intense emotional expression, are rather the prophets of romanticism than its ancestors. When Schubert dared to write lovely pieces without any reference to traditional forms, he began the history of romantic piano music. This he did in his lovely impromptus, Opus 90, and the famous Moments Musicales, both published in the year of his death, 1828. The impromptus were not so named by the composer, but the title can well stand. They are essentially improvisations at the piano. They were written not to suit any form, nor to try any technical task, but simply because the composer became fascinated with his musical idea and wanted to work it out, which is true, theoretically at least, of all romantic music. In the very first of the impromptus, that in C minor, we can almost see Schubert running his fingers over the piano, timidly experimenting with the discovery of a new tune, his childlike delight at finding it a beautiful one, and his pleasure in lingering over lovely cadences and enharmonic changes, or in working out new forms for his melody. The very first note, the octave G struck fortissimo, is a note for the pianoforte, and not for clavichord or harpsichord. For it is held, and with the damper pedal pressed down, so that other strings may join in the symphony in sympathetic vibration. And throughout the piece, this G seems to sound magically as the dominant around which the whole harmony centres, as toward a magnet. In other words, we are meeting in this first impromptu, our old romantic friend, sensuous tone. The pleasure which Schubert takes in repeating the G, either by inference or in fact, or in swelling his chords by the use of the pedal, or in drawing out melodic cadences, or in coaxing out the reverberating tones of the bass, or in letting his melodic tone sound as though from the human voice. This, we might almost say, marks the discovery of the pianoforte by the 19th century, and it is equally Romanticism's growing realisation of itself. All the impromptus are of great beauty, and are unmistakably of Schubert. They have the fault of improvisations in that they are too long, but if one is in a leisurely mood to receive them, they never become a bore. The moments musicales are still more typical of Schubert's genius, some of them short, ending suddenly, almost before the hearer is aware that they have begun, but leaving behind a definite, clear-cut impression like a cameo. They are the ancestors of all the genre pieces of later times. Each of them might have a fanciful name attached, and each has the directness of genius. 
Schubert's sonatas are important only in their possession of the qualities of the impromptus and moments musicales. They are filled with beauties, but as sonatas, as representatives of classical organization and logic, they are negligible. Schubert cannot resist the charm of a lovely melody, and when he finds one, the claims of form retire into the background. Certain individual movements are of high excellence, but played consecutively, they are uneven. The Fantasia in C minor, containing one of the themes from Schubert's song The Wanderer, is a fine imaginative and technical work, but its freedom of form is of no historical importance, as Mozart wrote a long Fantasia in C that was even more daring. The dances likewise have no significance in point of form, being written altogether after the usual manner of the day, they were in fact mostly potboilers, but they contain at times such appealing beauty that they helped to dignify the dance as a type of concert piano music. The ability to create the highest beauty in parvo is distinctive of the romantic movement, and Schubert's dances and marches have stimulated many another composer to simplicity of expression. The influence of them is evident in the Carnaval and the Davidsbundler Tänzer of Schumann. Liszt elaborated them and strung several together for concert use, and the waltzes of Brahms, who more perhaps than any other admired Schubert and profited by him, are derived directly from those of Schubert. Liszt may be quoted once more in his rhetorical style, but with his sympathetic understanding that never misses the mark. Our pianists, he says, hardly realise what a noble treasure is to be found in the clavier music of Schubert. The most of them play him through en passant, notice here and there repetitions and retards, and then lay them aside. It is true that Schubert himself is partly responsible for the infrequent performance of his best works. He was too unconsciously productive, wrote ceaselessly, mingling the trivial and the important, the excellent and the mediocre, paying no heed to criticism and giving his willfulness full swing. He lived in his music as the birds live in the air and sang as the angels sing. O oh, restlessly creative genius! O oh, faithful hero of my youthful heaven! Harmony, freshness, power, sympathy, dreaminess, passion, gentleness, tears and flames stream from the depths and heights of your soul, and in the magic of your humanity, you almost allow us to forget the greatness of your mastership. Along with Schubert, Weber stands as the progenitor of the modern pianoforte style. The comparative claims of the two can never be evaluated. Here again, it was Liszt who chiefly made the importance of the man known to the world. He took loving pains in the editing of Weber's piano works late in his life, and with conscientious concern for the composer's intention, wrote out amplified paraphrases of many of the passages to make them more effective in performance. The absolute value of these works, especially the sonatas, is much disputed. It is customary to call them structurally weak, and at least reputable to call them indifferent in invention. Yet we are constantly being reminded in them that the author was a genius, and the genius who composed Der Freischutz. Certainly they deserve more frequent performance, as sonatas, they are, on the whole, more brilliant and more adequate than Schubert's. Single movements, such as the Andante of the A-flat sonata, Opus 39, 
can stand beside Beethoven in emotional dignity and tender beauty. But whatever is the absolute musical value of these works, they are an advance on Beethoven in one particular, the quality which the Germans describe with the word Klaviermessage, suited to the piano. For Beethoven, with all the daring of his later sonatas, got completely away from the harpsichord method of writing, only to write for piano in orchestral style. He never began to exhaust the qualities of the pianoforte, which are distinctive of the instrument. Weber's writing is more for the pianoforte, especially Weber-enriched piano literature with dramatic pathos and romantic tone colouring, with vigorous harmony and expressive song-like melody. The famous Invitation to the Dance shows him at his best, giving full play to his love of the simple and folk-like tune, separating the hands and the fingers, and slashing brilliant streaks of light and shade in the piano keyboard. The famous Concertstück, a great favourite of Liszt and the Concerto, once the rival in popularity of Chopin's, are rapidly slipping back into the gloom of a forgotten style. As showpieces they pointed the way to further development of pianoforte technique, but that which made them brilliant is now commonplace, the shock in trade of even third-rate pianists, and the genuine emotional warmth which has made much of Schubert's pianoforte works immortal is absent in these tours de force of Weber. Historically, Schubert leads the way to the piano style of Schumann, and Weber to that of Liszt, and both in company to the great achievements of the Romantic period. But their style is a long way from modern pianoforte style, much more closely related to Beethoven than to Chopin. The dependence on the damper pedal for harmonic effects, the extreme separation of the notes of a broken chord, the striving for excessive power by means of sympathetic vibration of the strings, and, in general, the pointillage use of notes as spots of colour in the musical picture, are only in germ in their works. The chorale method of building up harmonies by closely adjacent notes still continues to the detriment of the best pianistic effect, but in the work of the composers immediately following, we find the qualities of the piano developed almost to the limit of possible effect. End of section 20